0: nine WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, your host, and as always, I'm really glad you've decided to join us. You know, all across our country, there are vestiges of earlier iterations of systemic racism and segregation. You can see it in the highways that were built through thriving black neighborhoods. You find it in disparate health outcomes across racial lines. And you can see it in the Confederate iconography that surrounds us in so many places still in this country. And you can see it in built structures, in the erection of literal walls meant to keep black families separate from their white counterparts. One such wall, which was built 80 years ago, still stands in Detroit's 8 Mile Wyoming neighborhood. Two journalists recently worked on a really comprehensive story about the wall and, a leg- and about the, family- see, the families who lived around that wall and the legacies that they live with. They not only uncovered the lasting consequences for people who lived on both sides of this wall, they also used historic real estate and business records to identify the person who actually built the wall. Aaron Einhorn is a national reporter with NBC News Digital, and Olivia Lewis is a reporter with Bridge Detroit. Their new story is out today, and they join us now to talk about it. Aaron and Olivia, welcome to Detroit today.
1: Thanks for having us. So, hey, Steven.
0: So I want to start here, uh, the basics. A lot of people don't know about the Burwood Wall. They maybe have heard something about it, but they don't really understand what it was why it was built, and what it meant in that neighborhood. So I'm going to start there, Aaron. uh, Give us some background. What is this wall, and why was it constructed?
1: Yeah, well, the the wall dates back to a time when, you know, the – we had redlining. It was a federal policy where the federal government had maps of every city and they designated certain neighborhoods as being safe investments and they colored them on their map red and green and they they designated other neighborhoods as hazardous and they colored them red, which is where the term redlining comes from. And uh, in this particular neighborhood, there had been a, uh, a Black community that started in the 19-teens, 1920s, Uh, When that part of the city was actually Greenfield Township, it wasn't the city. It was before Detroit annexed it. And uh, that community was there. And then, but this, you know, Detroit was growing really fast. You know, the population tripled between 1910 and 1930. There was a huge need for housing. A white developer came along, wanted to put a a white neighborhood, a community for white families there, uh, but was told that he couldn't, he couldn't get federal financing. I mean, we had federally backed home loans through the New Deal, but they wouldn't be available in neighborhoods that were too close to a redlined area. So we built a wall and Mm. then he was able to uh, to go ahead with his community. Mm.
0: Uh, And Olivia, one of the things that I think really resonates about this story is the way this fits into the narrative of racism and segregation in Metro Detroit more generally, not just in the 1940s when this wall was built, but before that and carrying forward. Talk about the sort of context, I guess, for uh, this Burwood Wall and this kind of division.
2: Yeah, it's actually
3: really interesting um, to have this wall built to separate uh, black and white families. And while today Detroit is uh, predominantly black, there were a lot of white families in this area at first. and so And they lasted about 10 years or so. Um, But I think what's really interesting is this wall is so very close to eight mile road that really separates Detroit from its suburbs, um, which are definitely more white than they are black. And so just seeing the proximity of this wall to other areas and how um, close everything is in terms of who lives where and then the difference of that in terms of what home prices are, what are the home values um, in terms of like what's going on in the city versus what's going on in the suburbs. I think all of it's very interesting and interconnected. And so when we think about areas where um, housing prices are lower or where black families were told to live um, early on versus where we are now and how that has changed over time, I think it's all been very interconnected, and we try to highlight that in the story. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Uh, so the wall has received some publicity in recent years. It was the subject of a book and was added to the National Register of Historic Places, uh, but no one had been able to identify the person who actually built the wall until now. So Aaron, tell us who the builder is and how you identified this person. Uh,
1: well, the name of the builder is James T. McMillan. Uh, so, and this is, you know, as you said, there was, uh, there's been a lot of publicity, and you know, when we first started this project, uh, you know, we would call, we were calling experts, and we would say, who built the wall? And it seemed like a really basic question to ask about a wall that gotten so much, certainly local publicity, and no one seemed to know. Uh, so the one clue we had was this: uh, there was a an article written by the Michigan Chronicle in 1941 about the wall, and it quoted a man it identified as a developer named James T. McMillan. Uh, but it didn't say anything further about him. And, you know, the researchers who applied for the National Registry of Historic Places to put the wall, to get the wall recognized, you know, had a, there was a footnote in their application that said, oh, it might be this guy who, who led the Detroit and Cleveland Navigation Company. Uh, but it's still, McMillan was a pretty common name, so we didn't know. But yeah, we found um, real estate records from that neighborhood, uh, that you know all that you know had this man's name on them and we traced that to his company which was called the Nottingham Land Company we went and got historic business records from the state archives and started looking through them and eventually we located home addresses uh, for him for James T. McMillan and two of his sons. Um, that trace that we were able to connect to that family, to these individuals through, you know, historic newspaper clippings from back when they used to put people's home addresses in the paper. Hmm. And, um, you know, so this family, you know, continues to be a very prominent family in Detroit and around the country, um, serving on corporate boards, community boards. In fact, uh, one of James T. McMillan's grandson is currently on the board of the Historical Society in Detroit. Um, and I spoke with that man for this story, and you know he was obviously, you know, somewhat surprised to get that call, and pretty unsettled to learn this information about his own family.
0: Mm. Uh, and, and the idea of being connected to that legacy. Talk a little more about what that means to to that family today, and what it means to the other families uh, who who are connected to that community.
1: Well, I mean, to me, this was, I think, the most telling revelation, at least for me, in doing this project about, you know, not just not just reaching out to that individual, but to other uh, other white folks who grew up near the wall. And we talked to eight or 10 um, people now in their 70s or 80s or even older, you know, who grew up there. Uh, Some lived like a block away from the wall and had no idea it was there at the time. You know, they had no idea the houses that they grew up in had deed restrictions. So language in their deeds that said, you can't live here unless you are, I'm going to try to remember the quote, uh, a pure, unmixed Caucasian race. They had that baked in to the deeds for the property in the white neighborhood that they built um, from the wall. And so, they, you know, so they didn't know that, you know, they never, you know, most of the white folks who grew up in that neighborhood went to either McDowell or Verner elementary schools. And in the 40s, almost all of their classmates were white. And you know, the and the the black children who lived on the other side of the wall went to Higginbotham, and their school was overwhelmingly black. And you know, no one stopped. You know, at least these white folks never stopped to wonder, okay, why was that? You know, and and to me, you know, that's where you get this. You know, this. This sort of i think almost like i guess you know complete misunderstanding of the dynamics we're living in today you know if they if you don't understand the way that you and your parents and your grandparents benefited like you could buy a house that other people couldn't buy mm-hmm. then it's really easy to say well i worked for everything i had no one gave me anything you know or they might see how their neighborhood looks, perhaps in a, in a nice suburb and compare it to certain parts of Detroit and say, oh, what a shame, you know, it's so, you know, it's so unfortunate it looks this way. They might think uncharitable thoughts about the people who live there and not really understand the policies that created those differences. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then when we ask them about them, you know, every one of these interviews are for the most part you know, they became very, very uncomfortable, very, very defensive, sort of worried that, you know, we were calling them racists, you know. But it was just this complete, you know, disconnect between like what had happened and and what they understood to have happened, yeah. at least in, for many of these folks.
0: Yeah. Uh, Olivia, uh, let's talk some about the African-Americans who lived in this neighborhood and the African-American community. I guess, as a whole uh, and what they knew about living on their side of the wall and how that might affect things like their home values and their opportunities going forward.
3: Yeah. So I think it was interesting that, um, for one, not everyone knew the wall
0: existed
3: um, at first, but it was like once they did, once they learned that the wall was there and that Uh, it was intended to separate Black from white, it was like the Black children who grew up there started to have this, like, understanding of how the world works and why uh, Black people are treated differently or that we're treated differently in general. Um, And so while, yes, it was intentionally built to separate Black from white, as white people began to move out of this neighborhood, more black families were able to move in. And so for a little while, this was a really thriving black community where, um, black families had access to affordable homes. They were able to live in a safe neighborhood where kids were playing together. Families were going to church together. People were walking to school, like everything that they needed was in this one area for this time. And so Um, a lot of the people that we talked to who grew up there in like the uh, 60s and 70s were talking about, oh, I had the best childhood and I had access to everything I needed. But at the same time, you know, that was when there was this entire racial reckoning happening um, across the country. And and in Detroit, when we think about 67. Um, And so at that point in time, it was as if these kids, because at the time they were kids or teenagers are talking about, I'm having this really great childhood, but I'm also learning how I'm being treated differently. I'm learning um, how things are not necessarily set up in equal ways. And so um, some of the people we talked to, like Jeff Edison, who is a lawyer in Detroit now, he also said, you know, I had the best childhood and I'm so thankful for my parents for raising me in this area. But at the same time, I had, I was, this was a time when I was involved in my first walkout um, at Mumford High School, where I became socially and politically aware of everything that was going on around me and how I fit into the puzzle. And so um, he said that growing up in this neighborhood really affected his interest and in how he would go on in life. And so he went, he went to Howard University, he has come back to Detroit, and now he's a lawyer. And so I, I think that, yes, while there's been um, a lot of terrible reasons as to why this wall was built. It did provide some space for some black people to go on and realize it's like political consciousness. And so, um, that was one good thing. But I think also when you think about long-term, the home values, like the home values in Detroit are so incredibly lower than they are elsewhere. When we think about the Metro Detroit area, Mm -hmm. home values are incredibly lower than they are. And so if you inherited a house, um, in this neighborhood near the Bird Wall, then the the value of that home is not anything close to what it is for someone who inherited a home in um, some of the other parts of Metro Detroit. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, the story is built to keep black from white. The story behind Detroit's Wailing Wall. You can find it uh, at NBC Digital and at Bridge Detroit. Uh, Those two organizations work together uh, to produce this work about the Burwood Wall in northwest Detroit. I'm talking now with Aaron Einhorn, who's a national reporter with NBC News Digital, and Olivia Lewis, who is a reporter uh, with Bridge Detroit. Uh, We would love to hear from you about the Burwood Wall and the legacy of Racism and division here in Southeast Michigan. Are you somebody who lives in the 8 Mile Wyoming neighborhood now? Or maybe you grew up in that area. Uh, what do you make of the Burwood Wall? What do you know about the wall and its history? Uh, do you think this is a, a wall that uh, that has a, a lasting legacy in our city, in our region today? Are there things that you can point to that, uh, that signify racism or systemic inequality that you could trace to things like uh, the wall. Uh, also, give us, uh, give us a call and let us know what you think we ought to do with symbols like this, uh, symbols of division, symbols of racist history. Uh, the Burwood Wall has become a piece of art, really, uh, in that neighborhood. Uh, There's wonderful murals that are painted on it now. Uh, Is that an appropriate way to preserve something like that? Uh, Should we be doing more to try to put it into context uh, and tell the story of why it was built and what effect it had? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page. And put comments there or you can go to twitter and uh and hashtag detroit today and uh, we'll work you into the conversation uh before we get to listeners uh olivia i i, I want to talk about the proximity of uh, this wall being built to, to some other things that happened in the city and kind of take people back to that time the 1940s were a really volatile time for race in the city two years after The wall is built. Uh, There are race riots in which uh, white mobs are wandering the streets, beating up and and killing random black people uh, over a dispute about pay in in the auto plants. Uh, Again, that's just two years after this happens. Uh, Take us back to that time a little bit through some of the families that you talked to about what the city was like at that point and what role race was playing.
3: Yeah so I guess I can, I can give um, kind of a, a timeline of events. And so uh, one of the families that we highlight in this story is the Cruz family, and um, they and Bernice Avery, who's um, a huge part of Detroit history, actually, mm-hmm. uh, but they, they arrived in Detroit around 1920, and they're the ones who really started this um, neighborhood called Shacktown. and so building these tar paper shacks. Um, in this neighborhood that's not necessarily Detroit yet, but becomes the um, eight-mile Wyoming area. Um, And so they start this small, black, shack shack town area. Uh, And then a few years later is when news reports say that there's going to be this super subdivision of the future in 1925. Um, And that was when um, they want to have this new, shiny, white, Neighborhood, um, And that's when they can't get the funding that Aaron had talked about due to redlining. Um, and so it wasn't until 1941 when the wall was actually completed. But within that time, uh, between 1925 and 1941, there is a ton of strife in Detroit. In regards to housing, and so when you think back to um, Dr. Ocean Sweet in 1925, he tried to move into a home on the east side of Detroit. Um, he was greeted with a white mob, uh, and again in uh, 19, I would say 43, I believe there was um, a housing development that went up for black people, and this was seen as a win that there was hey, like, there's going to be new housing for black people in Detroit, Mm -hmm. they were also greeted with a white mob. And so it's like every time there has been success for black people in terms of finding affordable housing in a nice neighborhood, they have been greeted with animosity. Um, And so it's just that ongoing thing in Detroit year after year. Yeah,
0: yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll continue this conversation with Aaron Einhorn of NBC News Digital and Olivia Lewis of Bridge Detroit. We will also start to get to listeners Vernon in Auburn Hill, Cindy in Ferndale, Lucy in Detroit. We'll hear from you. We'll get to some social media comments as well. If you would like to join us, 313 577 1019 is the number here on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Your city, your town,
3: your voice on 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station.
0: You're listening to Detroit today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, Thanks for tuning in. I'm talking with Aaron Einhorn, who's a national reporter with NBC News Digital, and Olivia Lewis, who is a reporter with Bridge Detroit. They have a new story out today at NBC News and Bridge Detroit. The headline is Built to Keep Black from White, the story of behind Detroit's Wailing Wall. Their story is about the Burwood Wall, erected in 1941 to divide black and white families in the eight-mile Wyoming Uh, Neighborhood. Their story takes a look at the legacy of that decision, the legacy of the families who lived on either side of the wall, and it identifies for the first time the person who actually built the wall. Uh, We're talking about uh, what all of that means in 2021, how it casts forward to shape uh, Southeast Michigan and shape systemic inequality. Uh, We would love to hear from you. Uh, Do you remember? The Burwood Wall. Did you grow up in that neighborhood? Uh, Give us a call. Let us know uh, what life was like there. Uh, Let us know what you know about the history uh, of that wall. And we'd also love to hear what you think about the idea of those symbols today. How do we contextualize them uh, appropriately so that uh, it's clear what they were? Uh, Should we keep symbols like that? Should we tear them down Uh, The Burwood Wall has become an art project, really, uh, in that neighborhood today. Uh, Is that an appropriate way to memorialize it? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter and put comments there, and uh, we will work into the conversation that way. Uh, Let's start with Cindy in Ferndale. Cindy, welcome to the show.
2: Ah, oh, Good morning. Hi. Let me take you off the speaker. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, I used to be the executive director of the Eight Mile Boulevard Association. Mm-hmm. And when I when I discovered the wall, I had no idea it was there. It's kind of hard to find, actually, the way they have it buried behind a, a cul-de-sac. But I was really surprised how many people, black and white, had Detroiters didn't know anything about it and were really surprised to find out about it. Um, and the photos I found in my research, the black and white photos of children in like the 30s leaning against that wall were, were just heartbreaking. Um, I had worked to try to get it designated as some sort of local landmark mm-hmm. and even to get the people at the own the Ona corner property to do another mural to, to direct people to it, because hmm. what do they say about our history if we don't know it or we, we're we destined to repeat it?
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, Cindy, I, I really appreciate the call uh, and, and the insights there, especially since uh, you used to to be active in, in that neighborhood. Uh, I, I think there are a lot of people who aren't quite sure what the history of that wall is, or don't even know uh, that it's there. It's one of the things that uh, that I think uh, we we owe ourselves some some introspection on, I guess, uh, as as a community. Um, so I want to I want to um, get to some. We have some great uh, audio uh, that was uh, that was created as part of. Doing this story, and I do want to get to to, to at least some of it. Uh, there, there was a movement among some African American community members by the midnight 1940s, pushing for Black families to be able to live wherever they wanted in relation to the wall. And in this clip from the NBC News digital feature, which is accompanying the reporting that uh, Aaron and Olivia did, we hear from Rose McKinney James, whose grandmother Bernice Avery was a central figure. Uh, in that moment. Let's listen to that clip.
4: It wasn't so much that they were making a point around integration or whether or not they cared whether or not they had a white neighbor. It was fundamentally that they should have the choice to live where they wanted to live. Her view was that as a black family, the right thing to do was to give them the opportunity to live in a home. That is just like a basic right.
0: Olivia, you were talking before the break about this movement at that time and the strife that was present in the city over the idea of Black people living where they wanted to live.
3: Yeah, I think there historically has just been um, an ongoing anti-Black agenda when it comes to housing policy in America, and that is shown through redlining. It's shown through, um, housing projects throughout America. It is shown, um, through the animosity that pops up, um, when there is a win of, um, affordable housing. And it just, every time I see it, it's just like, why does this keep happening and how can we um, as a people get around this, how can we undo these policies so that people can have affordable housing in safe neighborhoods um, where we can all um, live together in this like cohesive, happy bubble? But I, I feel like there's just so many policies that are working against that from happening um, mm-hmm. that it's just it's a lot of undoing that has to happen before we can get to a place of like
1: happiness,
0: mm-hmm. I guess. Mm hmm.
1: If I could just jump in for a second, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's worth noting that Bernice Avery and her neighbors – You know, in that neighborhood, when they saw the wall, which Bernice, who wrote a memoir, described as humiliating, it really motivated them. And they, you know, reached out to elected officials. They wrote a letter to to FDR, the president of the United States, and ended up getting the attention of the Federal Housing Authority director in Michigan, Mm. who ultimately backed their cause. And actually, the surprising end of this, or not the end, but the surprising kind of moment in the story is Bernice Avery and her neighbors are actually able to get access to the very federal loans that the wall was built to enable for the white folks Mm. so they actually have a victory in this and and part of that sort of great you know strong black neighborhood that grew you know some of it is as a result of white flight but a lot of it is you know successful community activism and organizing by a really strong black community that was there before
0: yeah Uh, Dave on Twitter raises a really interesting point. He says this wall is just uh, south of Royal Oak Charter Township, which is an historic black community. That's another story that many Metro Detroiters don't know about, and it has some relationship to the Burwood Wall. According to the Royal Oak Township website, the eight-mile segment of the township is imprinted with the social history of the country. It reflects the social status and the physical segregation of African-Americans throughout the country's uh, history. He also uh, he also points out in another uh, tweet that uh, Royal Oak Township was divided up into several cities, but only one charter township. It may st- sound strange that Royal Oak Charter Township is south of Ferndale and Oak Park, but these are all part of the same township. The Burwood Wall is just south across uh, 8 Mile. This is another way that uh, this story that you two have done Kind of echoes uh, the the other things that were going on in this community, both at that time and now into the future. The existence of Royal Oak Township uh, is is another way in which uh, African Americans uh, were were pushed into certain places to keep them away from white families and kept out of other places to keep them from white families. Aaron, this this is literally just across eight mile from uh, from the wall.
1: Yeah. In fact, if people go, which I hope they'll go online and and see the story on on NBC News or on Bridge Detroit, you can see the 1939 redlining map and you can see all the areas of Detroit. It's actually I was surprised by how much of Detroit was, you know, blanketed in a sea of red at that time. But, you know, we zoom in on this neighborhood and you can see there's this big chunk that's below eight mile and this big chunk that's directly above it. And, you know, through reporting People told us that these were essentially the same neighborhoods. So Royal Charter Township and the black neighborhood that was below Eight Mile that was one community. Eight Mile happened to divide it, and when the you know Detroit annexed the part below Eight Mile, they happened not to annex the part above Eight Mile. But they were really the same community. Our reporting focused on the Detroit portion because that's where the wall was. Uh, but the story of, of Royal Oak Charter Township, which I didn't know before this reporting, like I, I learned that in the course of this, it's really the same. You know, when they were when the when when, you know, the annexation was occurring in Oakland County, there was a reason that Royal Oak Charter Township was sort of like left out of Ferndale and mm-hmm. Oak Park.
0: Mm-hmm. But, Let's go back to uh, listeners here. Let's go to Vernon in Auburn Hills. Vernon, welcome to the show.
2: Uh, thank you, Stephen. Uh, interesting show, and your guests are bringing out some points that that uh, people are people are just associating with um, uh, segregation and racism. And and I I grew up in Detroit. I attended Pershing High School, and I can remember there was a wall at Alter Road, and back in the forties, Hamtramck was essentially a hundred percent Polish, and that area you're talking about was pretty much a hundred percent Jewish. Mm. Why didn't the United States government say, "Okay, we're not going to give any loans to Hamtramck or we're not going to allow people, people in the Wyoming area to get car insurance? Why did the government just zero in and put the screws to black people? I'm at a loss as to, you know, this is this is America. Why did we do that?
0: Yeah, well, I, I mean, Vernon, uh, some of the answer is is found in our founding. I mean, this is a this is a country that, while it sort of trumpeted the idea of freedom and equality at its founding, had baked into its foundation that level of uh, not just passive uh, inequality, but but active efforts to make sure that uh, African Americans and others. Uh, didn't have the same kinds of opportunities. And so uh, when we see that in the 1940s, it's a little shocking because uh, we tend to think that by then the country had moved on, but uh, but it hadn't. And in fact, uh, even today, uh, it's still possible to see the vestiges of those things and in some cases uh, to still see that, uh, that active attempt to enforce uh, inequality. Vernon, I really appreciate the call, though, Uh, and the insights. Let's go quickly to Lucy in Detroit. Lucy, welcome to the show.
4: Hi. um, Hi. Thanks for having me on. Uh Um, I was just calling because I drive by the Henry Ford plant, um, the original Model T plant on Mm -hmm. Woodward and Highland Park, like almost every day. And I've always wondered why a, you know, billion-dollar multinational corporation like Ford can't, number one, fix that building and make it into something useful to describe not only like the founding of Detroit, but, you know, the recognition of the racism within the Ford organization when, you know, Detroit was booming and Mm -hmm. people were migrating up to take jobs that were, you know, the jobs for black folks were just worse. Mm -hmm. and. Anyway, there's a there's a small historical plaque in front of the um, building, and you know the front has plabic tile on it. I mean, it could be just like really spectacular, but here it is, just sitting deteriorating. And and I have you know I take friends by there when they come in from out of town, and they're just shocked that such a landmark, such a monument to not just Detroit's history, but the history of the right. country. Yeah, you but, know, is just.
0: Lucy, there, it's a great like it's a, a great point. I, I I do want to point out. I'm pretty sure Ford sold that factory several several years ago. I don't think they're the current owners, but it is part of their history. And the idea that it's sitting there rotting, uh, you know, sort of suggests a dereliction that I would think uh, should should not sit well with them. But but before we have to break, uh, Aaron and Olivia, I, I want to talk just a little about. Uh, Lucy's call reminds me of this, this question about preservation and uh, how we mark things that, that talk about awful things in our past. Uh, talk about that community today, 8 Mile and Wyoming, the wall itself, and and how that community is trying to hold on to uh, its history and, and recognize it. Uh, Olivia, I'll start with you this time.
3: Yeah, so um, this neighborhood, the wall is currently still standing. Um, it's been painted and um, has a lot of different messages on it now. So its, it's I guess it's not as um, intimidating uh, as it was in 1941. It's like it looks like it tells a story and it's very colorful and bright. Um, but in terms of the neighborhood, uh, you know, they have this annual... Um, cookout every year in August, um, and it's something that brings hundreds, if not a thousand people back to the neighborhood every year. And I think that's something that's really special um, and kind of unheard of because I I don't think that many neighborhoods across the country um, have annual cookouts where hundreds, if not a thousand people show up every year to come back and say, hey, remember when and let's um, congregate and eat together. Um, can we fellowship together as a group, knowing that we grew up here, that we have this connection um, in the neighborhood. It's just something that's important. I think it's very sweet, and it's something that everyone that we talked to, they all brought it up. Um, Mm. And there were so many people that we interviewed that didn't make it into the story, but it was something that they said, hey, uh, I I still go to this cookout, or I know people who are still going to this year after year, even if they don't live there uh, in the neighborhood anymore.
0: Wow, wow uh Aaron
1: Yeah, I mean I think the I mean the yeah that cook you know they have t-shirts that have the wall I mean in some ways the wall this wall that was built to divide ended up becoming a thing that brought people together and it still does. I mean we actually end the story with Uh, a woman named Teresa Moon who lives in the neighborhood is on the community association and can see the wall from her house. Mm -hmm. And she was talking about how she always sees tour groups pulling up to see it. Um, You know, like from churches and schools to learn about housing policy and history. And she always makes a point of kind of coming out and talking to them. And she said, you know, I, I want them to know not just the history of the wall and of redlining. she's like, I want them to understand my community so in that sense, it's it's actually you know, and she said most of those folks are are white. She said very liberal <laughs> people are crying and saying, "I'm so sorry this happened," you know, sort of trying to to you know, understand the past, you know, which is why we did the story really to to help people better understand how we got to this moment of racial reckoning that we're in in this country, how, you know, why is Detroit still the most segregated region in the country There was reported a couple of weeks ago? And it's all kind of roots back to this. And the wall is just one symbol uh, of all of those policies that that brought us to this moment.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, Aaron Einhorn, NBC News digital reporter, national reporter, and Olivia Lewis, reporter with Bridge Detroit. It was really great to have both of you here with us for this conversation. Congratulations on the story, and thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks. Mm -hmm.
0: Thank you. All right, we are going to take another break, and when we come back, we are going to talk with Abdul El-Sayed about the underlying fear and anxiety and many people's decision to remain unvaccinated for COVID-19. Really interesting post that he recently had uh, online about that. We're going to talk about it next. Stay with us for more Detroit Today.